Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On Friday, Elon Musk announced via tweet that documents related to Twitter's decision to intervene in the propagation of a October 2020 story in the New York Post about then-candidate Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, would be made public. The incident caused a furor at the time, with some Republicans and supporters of former President Donald Trump insinuating that it was proof that social media firms are biased against conservative interests. Some even maintain that the actions of Twitter and Facebook with regard to this particular New York Post story may have had some impact on the outcome of the election, as far-fetched as that might be. Today, we'll hear two voices on these disclosures. The first is David Ingram, who covers tech for NBC News. He'll walk us through what happened. And the second is Mike Masnick, the editor of the influential site TechDirt, who offers his first thoughts and disclosures and what it pretends for the future of Twitter under Elon Musk. Let's get right to it. David Ingram, tech reporter with NBC News. David, can you tell my listeners just a little bit about your beat? Uh, you've certainly been on the Musk beat for the last many months, but what else do you cover? What's your approach? Yeah, so I, I broadly cover uh, Silicon Valley and the tech industry for NBC News. Mostly what I do is I write articles for our website, and then sometimes I do appear on camera either on um, some of our uh, linear TV or our streaming services. And I write about usually some mix of the big tech story of the moment and also long-term projects trying to explain uh, the pitfalls and upsides of the tech industry to a very broad, uh, mostly U.S. audience. Well, certainly one of the tech stories of the moment, perhaps the biggest tech story of the moment is Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter and yesterday the release of internal files Uh, relating to an incident that took place in 2020. And I kind of do want to start there, uh, if you will. Can you take us back to what happened on October 14th, 2020, that kicked all of this off? Yeah, about about a little more than two years ago. uh, This was in the heat of the presidential election of 2020 between Donald Trump, the incumbent, and Joe Biden, the challenger. And uh, October 14th was about, I think it was about three weeks just before Election Day. Uh, The New York Post... The, which is a conservative-leaning tabloid newspaper, um, very large circulation. They published a story, I think initially online, uh, with allegations against the Bidens, both Joe Biden and uh, one of his sons, Hunter Biden. And uh, the allegations were, New York Post was the only outlet to report these allegations initially. And the Post story relied on emails from Hunter Biden's laptop uh, that they said was from Hunter Biden's laptop. And the, the chain of custody there was was one of the questions that a lot of people had about the Post story. Uh, where do they get the emails? They did say in the story they got them uh, through Rudy Giuliani and learned about them from Steve Bannon. And the story immediately provoked a lot of interest online, both because it involves Hunter Biden and because of the way that the Post uh, framed the story they essentially were accusing the Bidens of, of wrongdoing involving Burisma, which is a Ukrainian oil company, and alleging that Hunter Biden inappropriately tried to set up a meeting between an advisor to that company 
and Joe Biden, who was who at the time was was vice president. So this is in the context of the platforms being concerned, of course, about uh, similar type of interference, perhaps from uh, foreign adversaries, thinking back to the DNC leaks and uh, other kind of activity by uh, the Russian Internet Research Agency, uh, other related kind of interference concerns. So the platforms, and it's not just Twitter, but Facebook as well, essentially saw a red flag here. Part of the big context for them was that, as you said, four years earlier, Russian operatives had hacked emails of the DNC and other Democrats and had leaked those to the media, to social media, uh, through a variety of channels. And essentially, the Russians were accused of using Facebook and Twitter to disseminate these leaks unchallenged. And people who worked at Facebook and Twitter at that time period, they thought they were being used. So they wanted to prevent that from happening again, where potentially illegally obtained documents, they didn't want those spreading on, on the companies they worked for. So fast forward from 2016 to 2020, they see the story online on the New York Post website, and they're faced with the question of how to handle it. Do they treat that like any other news story? Do they treat it like it was 2016 again, where we're dealing with potentially illegal obtained documents or somewhere in between. And that's sort of what brings us back to the leak on Friday of internal Twitter documents, where Elon Musk is trying to show us some additional details of how that debate went down within Twitter back in October 2020. Well, I guess we can't even really call it a leak, can we, since uh, the documents were provided by apparently the company's owner and Putative chief executive. That's right. Yeah. He, when he bought Twitter, he, he bought everything within Twitter, including what's on their computers and their internal corporate email. I don't think that's in dispute at this point, whether he had the right to release these documents. He released them to a journalist, Matt Tiabi, who has um, a long record of uh, magazine journalism, a uh, very provocative, strongly opinionated writer, a little bit hard to pin down with a specific label. But he's, I think, fair to say, very contrarian and has covered a lot of different subjects over the years from finance to politics to I think he was based in Russia for a while as well. So this release uh, occurred, you know, on Friday evening. It was a sort of thread of tweets from this journalist who suggested on his Substack that he, in fact, had, I suppose, agreed with Elon Musk or with Twitter uh, that he would release these this information on Twitter first. Tell me a little bit about this big reveal. How did it go down and what did we learn? It went down with a lot of suspense. Elon Musk and Matt Tayabi kind of slow rolled this one. So I think it was about roughly noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on Friday. Elon Musk tweets out that at 5 p.m. Eastern, the uh, two hours later or so, the Twitter files would be published on Twitter describing something about the Hunter Biden laptop. And Musk had been, had been sort of teasing this for a few days, saying that he wanted to provide greater transparency to how Twitter had operated in the past. So 5 p.m. Eastern rolled around. I think a lot of people within tech, within politics, within the media, were really kind of on the edge of their seats to see, okay, what's, what's Elon Musk going to show here? And 5 p.m. comes and goes Eastern time and, and nothing appears. So People start tweeting at Musk, you know, why are you late? And then Musk says, he clarifies that he's fact-checking and it's going to be another 
40 minutes or so. Finally, I think around 6.37 p.m. Eastern time, sort of out of nowhere, I think, Matt Taibbi started tweeting out these finals. And we I don't think we had a sense before he started tweeting that he would be the vehicle, the, the sort of uh, journalist that, that Musk apparently had hand-chosen to, to tell the story. So Matt starts uh, this long Twitter thread, which starts off with kind of, you might say, like a, a lot of throat clearing, you know, a lot of background, you know, not really giving the the substance of the allegations. And eventually he's, I think people lose patience with his Twitter thread and he speeds things up, starts posting what he says are some documents from inside Twitter and starts sort of laying out some of his, some of his conclusions in sort of a, I think an abridged Twitter thread. So let's talk a little bit about some of those conclusions. Can you speak to, you know, what the actual document said that were revealed? Now, Taibbi says that there are thousands of documents and this is just the first of multiple reports that he has planned around them. He suggests, you know, we'll hear more about topics like shadow banning and the decision to uh, suspend other prominent accounts on the platform. But what did we learn last night in retrospect about the New York Post's story and that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing we learned were some details of how the debate went down uh, within Twitter. So on the day of the Post story back in October 2020, Twitter wasn't saying very much publicly. They had taken actions along with Facebook to slow the spread of the story. Twitter prevented uh, users from sharing the link in tweets or in direct messages and Twitter, I think by their own admission, was not very forthcoming two plus years ago about why they had done that, at least immediately. But we didn't really know. I mean, we had, I, think, I think we all had a sense of, because there was a very public debate of what Twitter should do, the question was, you know, was that debate similar inside? Um, how did Twitter employees and Twitter executives view this? And, and I think what we really learned is that the, the debate inside Twitter very much mirrored the debate outside Twitter probably a little bit more informed and experienced given that they work in this area um, rather than just sort of offering theories, but but they considered what their policies were, what their existing policies were. Did this action fit with those policies? Was there some other action or reason they should be giving for the action they're taking? Are they doing the right thing? And there's some back and forth where Twitter executives, in, in particular their, their chief lawyer, is defending this policy where some people on the communications team, public relations team are telling their colleagues like, look, we can't, it's hard for us to defend this. Like there are, the reasoning here doesn't quite add up. Um, and by the end of the day, I mean, this was already known that Jack Dorsey, then the CEO of Twitter made his displeasure now. So I, I think around, I think it was that evening, maybe around 7 p.m., Jack Dorsey tweets out that uh, it had been unacceptable for Twitter to have taken those big steps of trying to stop the spread of the story um, without actually explaining why or giving a consistent reason for why it did so. So so we really got to see what some of the individual employees felt at Twitter and, and how that discussion proceeded. And of course, that was one of several moments where Twitter executives have acknowledged essentially that they made a mistake, both kind of from a policy perspective, procedurally, and in terms of the implementation of the block on the URL and some subsequent actions that were taken against uh, individuals in the Trump campaign or in the Republican Party uh, for sharing that information or information related to it, including Kaylee McEnany, uh, who was then senior in the uh, Trump administration. You know, one of certainly the, the fresh details was just who was reaching out to Twitter to give 
feedback. And I, you know, I think the feedback itself was not particularly surprising, but you had the White House press secretary whose, whose account was temporarily locked, reaching out and asking, the White House is asking why this account is being locked. You had a Democratic congressman from California reaching out to Twitter saying, look, the explanation you're giving about some, some potential safety threat here is just not satisfying people on Capitol Hill and essentially saying you need to do better. And people from the outside were really putting pressure on Twitter to either reverse course and allow the story to spread normally as it would any other story or to give a, a more uh, persuasive reason for why it was taking the action it was taking. And you know, some of the Twitter executives, including their top lawyer internally, were standing by their position saying that the White House press secretary needed to delete a tweet that was in violation of policies. And until they did so, you know, that account would remain locked. I think it is worth saying here that Twitter did have a written policy against the sharing of hacked materials. And that dated to 2018. It had its roots in that 2016 era. And Twitter employees, I think, were struggling. Okay, we have this policy that you can't spread hacked materials, how does that apply to a New York Post story that is apparently relying on on emails that, that they didn't know if they were legally obtained? So you've got this essentially fog of war moment, right? You've got Giuliani, uh, not exactly the most trusted vehicle for information, Steve Bannon, uh, a known uh, propagandist, dissembler uh, of facts. You've got the New York Post. I mean, you know, for all its storied history, Yesterday, I read a piece that was in the New York Post about Vladimir Putin taking a fall and soiling himself, which 10 paragraphs (laughs) down or so was sourced to an anonymous Telegram user. So, I mean, you know, we're not exactly talking about high trust kind of environment. And yet Twitter's essentially made it's made a mistake. I mean, I think they've acknowledged that. Um, So it's kind of in many ways a, a kind of major overreaction to uh, the 2016 scenario they'd feared so much. I think that's an accurate description of of how even Twitter employees feel now, and some of them felt at the time. Uh, we heard an interview recently with Yul Roth, who was a high-level head of trust and safety at Twitter until recently. And he said in this interview that even at the time in October 2016, he did not agree with the call of other managers and executives who had decided to stop the spread or slow the spread of this New York Post story. He felt that that was going too far, that they hadn't quite met the high burden of showing that this was hacked material in order to take the really extraordinary step of blocking this this New York Post link. So yeah, I I think the majority of of Twitter employees at the time were at a minimum dissatisfied with uh, how the company handled it. And, you know, I think Dorsey's comment about how it was unacceptable was, was pretty widespread. And so we've seen this incident essentially kind of, I don't know how to quite say it, fester uh, perhaps in the right-wing media and the right-wing political conversation. Um, It's been brought up numerous times in congressional and Senate hearings. It is now promised that congressional House Republicans intend to call Twitter executives involved in this incident uh, in for interviews uh, or testimony in committee in the spring once Republicans take over the House. In many ways, this has become a kind of totem on the right, um, a sort of sign that these left-leaning social platforms are interfering in the public discourse on their behalf. Is there any proof of that in what Matt Taibbi brought forward yesterday? 
you know, I, I think it's very possible that Matt Taibbi will will post things that that give more direct evidence on that point, uh, either for or against it. The emails that he posted yesterday included very little in the way of references to partisanship or wanting explicitly to help one candidate or another, hurt one candidate or another. These were not emails that said, we must help Joe Biden. They, they were primarily concerned about whether Twitter itself was being used improperly by people, by hackers who had who had gotten these emails. So, you know, I, I don't know what Republicans are going to do in the House next year in terms of hearings. It does sound like they want to continue a focus on this. I think it is a, it was a sort of a, almost a, a watershed might be a little strong, but it, it was a big moment where Twitter and Facebook were exerting this power they have to, over what we all see on social media. And in a way that, um, you know, may have been an overreaction to 2016, maybe not, but it was a radical shift in strategy for how companies think about all this. It's also worth saying that according to Hunter Biden, he is under investigation by the Justice Department for tax issues. So um, there are other issues involving uh, Hunter Biden that are yet to be resolved. He says he has not done anything wrong in regard to his taxes. And, you know, I think we all expect that uh, there'll be a decision from the Justice Department and sometime in the medium to near future about whether he faces charges. But there are other avenues for Republicans to talk about if they want to keep talking about Hunter Biden uh, separate from from this Twitter issue. So one of the things that Taibbi wrote was that he had seen no evidence that there was government involvement in Twitter's move to block the New York Post story. So this had been one of the kind of key concerns on the right, this idea that uh, somehow the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, or some other government entity uh, had influenced Twitter's decision to take action on this story. Uh, of course, that, I guess, flame was fanned slightly by uh, Mark Zuckerberg with relation to uh, Facebook's decision to limit the spread of the URL uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast a little bit. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? W- what evidence did we see there about the government involvement in any of this? This is such a story with so many uh, confusing uh, layers of the, of the onion and uh, so many different weird side tangents. But yes, this is an idea that Zuckerberg promoted or dropped in this Joe Rogan interview that there had been a warning from the FBI that somehow influenced Facebook's thinking on this. And Zuckerberg said at the time that it was, wasn't a direct warning about the laptop story, but it was a general warning about hack materials and, and Facebook being used by foreign threat actors. And Taibbi said very explicitly, very directly, that he saw uh, no evidence in the Hunter Biden story and Twitter's handling of it that there had been government involvement. So nothing related to the FBI or the White House or Justice Department, which I, I think serves to undercut the emphasis that Zuckerberg put on this. The New York Post at the time was kind of downplaying Zuckerberg's comment, too, that he was trying to shift blame from Facebook to the FBI it wasn't, you know, we haven't seen the actual communication from the FBI to Facebook or to Twitter, but Taibbi was pretty firm that he had seen nothing to show, you know, clear uh, involvement of the, FBI, of the FBI. I mean, one thing I'm struck by in looking through this material is on some level, it seems to kind of corroborate a sort of different story, which is that you know, you've got these policy executives at Twitter uh, struggling to interpret what to do in this situation in this murky situation, they're trying to kind of read their own policy 
react quickly. Perhaps they've made a mistake. But on the other hand, you've got multiple instances or multiple kind of bits of evidence that point to the opposite conclusion that the company is making partisan decisions. And, you know, you've got Tybee suggests that Jack Dorsey himself uh, intervenes on multiple occasions on behalf of or with respect to content moderation decisions uh, on accounts across the political spectrum. You've got the main or most eloquent, perhaps, uh, questioner of this incident in the moment being a, a Democratic congressman from uh, California. Uh, you've got other evidence that Taibbi suggests that these incidents don't just affect the political right on the spectrum. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it kind of paints a, a bit of a murky picture, but it doesn't seem like that's how it's being received on the right at all. I and mean, if I look at the headlines today on Newsmax, Fox News, Breitbart, you know, this is proof that Twitter wanted to throw the election to Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, I mean again, we may see more from Matt Taibbi that goes to that point. The the actual facts that we learned, you know, the vast majority of them we knew um, going into Friday. I mean, the, the details about who was complaining to Twitter and, and their internal deliberations, those details were new, but I don't think they changed the overall takeaway, which is that, as you said, Twitter executives from their own telling of it really generally overreacted to, to the post story. This is, you know, I, I think people who are dissatisfied with the 2020 election result certainly are going to look at this as another sort of piece of evidence that maybe they were somehow treated unfairly. And I mean, I, I would be curious, frankly, to hear from Donald Trump himself or others in his world who who could maybe connect those dots a little bit more and try to show why this was so influential in the election. We haven't seen, I think, any evidence that a lot of voters cast their ballots in the election because of lack of knowledge about the New York Post story. That would be a hard thing to tell, of course. But yeah, I, I think this is going to, we're going to hear more about this for sure from, from parts of the internet. Of course, arguably the story and its details were you know, made far more prominent uh, by this incident occurring around it uh, than they would have been had the Post story simply shared on its own accord. Um, but I'm going to ask you maybe a last question to kind of put this incident of Musk sharing these documents uh, with Taibbi, vaunting their release in this way, kind of creating a bit of a circus around it. In the context of his behavior since he's acquired the company, you've been covering him very closely. What does this tell us perhaps about how he'll handle Twitter as a platform or how he'll handle, handle the information that he has access to uh, as a result of being CEO of this company? Well, we know that Elon Musk makes decisions often very quickly without necessarily a lot of planning or input from, from a wide circle of people. And I think what we saw here um, reflected that because some of the documents that Matt Taibbi posted involved or named individuals and gave their email addresses, which uh, some Twitter users were arguing goes against Twitter's own policy against that kind of release of personal information. Doc, it's called doxing. But I think Musk is sort of going back to maybe an earlier period in social media where executives kind of were writing the rule book as they went along. And he, he, he inherited an existing rule book from Twitter that was long and detailed. And I, I think he is continuing to show that he is going to rewrite parts of it as he learns more about how Twitter's operated, 
He's not going to be bound by the decisions of prior management. He strongly disagrees with, with how prior management ran Twitter. And I think he is going to really relish the idea of both reversing some of those decisions, criticizing them, and coming up with a new, maybe a new paradigm, maybe an old paradigm for, for how social media operates. Well, certainly, I suppose that will give you lots of uh, <laughs> items to cover over the next few weeks and months. David Ingram, tech reporter for NBC News, thank you so much. Uh, encourage my listeners to follow you on Twitter, of course, at David underscore Ingram. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Justin. enjoying this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and head over to techpolicy.press to sign up for our newsletter. Next up, we'll continue to unpack what we learned and what we didn't learn from the disclosure of internal Twitter communications on Friday and what the incident may tell us about the future of Twitter under Elon Musk. Mike Masnick, I'm the uh, founder and editor of the TechDirt blog and the president of the Kopi Institute. Mike, I appreciate you talking to me on a Saturday, uh, working on the weekend, <laughs> but I suppose uh, Elon Musk somewhat dictated the news cycle when he decided on Friday to announce that uh, there would be the revelation of what he called the Twitter files, which came in the form of a series of tweets uh, from the journalist, Matt Taibbi. What was your first reaction to the material that Matt put forward. Um, what material is <laughs> the real thing? I, I, you know, I, you know, when, when he announced it, I, I was like, well, I'm interested, right? And, you know, who doesn't want to know this stuff? Um, but the amazing thing was that, you know, one, besides the fact that the Twitter thread was delayed for like two hours before it actually came out. And then once it came out, you know, the first, you know, 20 or so <laughs> tweets were complete nothing of just sort of um, random throat clearing. And, and then when we finally got to what I guess was the the focus of it, that there was nothing. There, there was absolutely nothing of interest. It, it was, you know, almost exactly things that Twitter had said publicly in the days and weeks after all of this went down. Uh, you know, that the company had a policy in place around hacked materials. There was uh, some questions raised about the provenance of, of this material. And, you know, basically in an abundance of caution, the company, you know, hesitated and said that it, it fit under that policy. So that, that was all known and that was all publicly stated. Um, the policy itself was open to criticism. We had criticized that policy months earlier when they had blocked a, another, they had actually shut down, uh, suspended another account, the DDO Secrets account uh, under that same hacked hacked materials policy because they were releasing some police chat logs. We had said that it was it was going to be problematic because you're going to end up blocking legitimate journalism if you say that you can't have any any materials like this because this this kind of material shows up in legitimate journalism all the time. 
Uh, and so it basically just confirmed everything that everybody knew, but was presented in in such a, a sort of conspiratorial tone uh, and and suggesting a bunch of things that that you know for people who were looking to make claims that they could take and sort of run with it. You know, the the few things that that it revealed that were you know potentially semi interesting was it, it showed you know very much out of context. It, it showed requests from the DNC which appeared to be just traditional flags, you know, basically saying like, please check this content to see if it violates the rules. And as some other people have looked up, but apparently Matt Taibbi either did not look up or chose not to reveal, those were non-consensual uh, nude images um, of Hunter Biden. And so those were things that clearly violate Twitter's policies and violate a number of different state laws. Uh, and so, you know, reasonable things. There was no indication that any of the requests had anything to do with the New York Post story. And, you know, there was basically just nothing. And and yet people are completely running with it and assuming that this is some big reveal. And it's, it's, it's really just confirming, you know, the discussion, it revealed some of the discussion inside of Twitter, which seemed like perfectly reasonable, normal discussion, actually surprisingly uh, careful and thoughtful and earnest. I actually thought out of all of this, the, the Twitter's trust and safety apparatus came out of it looking good, though there's tons of people who seem to disagree with that. It seems, you know, there was nothing really that newsworthy in all of this. So to some extent, I feel like experts like you, others who've commented on this, agree after the fact that Twitter ultimately made a mistake, right, in uh, limiting the spread of this particular New York Post URL and some of the kind of downstream actions that it took as a result. Um, but kind of understand that there was a fog of war kind of situation there where there were a bunch of sort of external uh, circumstances, uh, certainly concerns over the source of the material, uh, the messengers themselves, the individuals who are known to be uh, essentially bringing that material forward uh, to the post, to the journalists that uh, ultimately wrote the story. Uh, not exactly the most trustworthy individuals, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon. But this has become a totem on the right. This is a, now, it seems like, a kind of important cornerstone in the big lie. Yeah, and I don't, I don't fully understand why, um, you know, other than it's just something that they can cling to. And so I had actually, I mean, it's kind of funny because last week I had started to draft an article that was, you know, basically titled, all right, let's talk about the Hunter Biden laptop, um, because I've written about it. I've written about how it's a nothing story for, you know, a, a multiple times, but I've, it's always been in other stories as, as part of the story, the, this larger story. And so I just wanted to have a post that was you know, specifically sort of explaining why it's a nothing story. It, you know, the, the extent of the actual story, as I already kind of said, is that, you know, Twitter had a bad policy and I thought it was a bad policy and I had said it was a bad policy before all this went down. But, you know, that happens. I mean, these companies have bad policies. The thing that everybody's trying to focus on and claim is that there was, you know, a government involvement or that, that the suppression of the story was politically motivated. And, and there's no, there remains no evidence to support that. There was that this story broke and, and, you know, I was online that when the story broke and I remember there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of concern. There were some oddities about the New York Post story, including the fact that the person who said was the original reporter on it had their, their name pulled from the byline. Um, you know, that should be a warning. There were other indications that it, it might be of questionable provenance. And so, 
there were all these questions. And if you remember kind of what had happened, you know, in 2016 and, and uh, you know, a few other times, there were real concerns about how different foreign actors might seek to, you know, abuse social media to try and prevent, present, you know, blatantly false or hacked information in, in questionable ways. And so there was sort of an abundance of caution and, you know, whether or not you agree with it. And I think, you know, again, like blocking the New York Post never made any sense. But, you know, you can see there's a perfectly logical explanation there. And there's no evidence of the government actually getting involved you know, trying to suppress it, or even the Biden campaign trying to suppress the story. People are talking about, oh, you know, the Biden campaign was was involved in this. And again, like the only evidence that they showed was that they were focused on the the uh, naked pictures, and not the New York Post story. And so, you know, whatever the the underlying thing is that people think is is the the big story, just just isn't there. But they're just they seem to just want to focus on it because they need to they need to just sort of you know pump up the conspiracy factor and and this is all they have so i i don't i honestly don't get it i feel like there's got to be there's got to be a better conspiracy theory out there that they could they could center on but for whatever reason they're they're completely obsessed you know i mean one obsessed with hunter biden who isn't even you know he's not part of the government and is not the candidate and obviously not the president and you know i, I don't i just don't see what the big deal is other than it's something for them to cling to Elon Musk has characterized this as a violation of the Constitution's First Amendment. Um, I've just spent an hour, more than an hour of my life listening to uh, a Twitter space with Elon Musk and other characters uh, talking about the fact that, you know, there's what seems obvious to them that the government is, you know, engaging with Twitter in order to censor people's speech. For my listeners' sake, do you see uh, any potential violation of the First Amendment? The only thing in all the, the the releases that raised any kind of First Amendment question was the claim that was never then gone any further from uh, from Matt Taibbi that the Trump administration also sent requests to Twitter. Now, and this is important because people seem to have like you know believe time works backwards in some way in in terms of claiming this because people are pointing to the DNC requesting the takedown of the naked pictures and claiming that that is a First Amendment violation. Clearly, that has nothing to do with the First Amendment because the DNC was not the government. They were representing a campaign for the president. So this is, you know, it's just individuals pointing out potential terms of service violations who are not the government. That is perfectly fine. You and I can report anything, you know, and, and Twitter will review them. Because they're a political campaign, because Twitter and every social network, frankly, has uh, ways for campaigns, all different political campaigns at all different levels to communicate with certain teams within Twitter. You know, perhaps their reports were given more credence than others, but the same is true of different people who, you know, lots of high profile people have, have the ability to communicate that way and to, to send in reports. Nothing about it indicated any kind of demand, any kind of coercive pressure. So the only thing that was potentially of interest from a First Amendment standpoint would be if the government is putting pressure on the company. And Taibbi did mention that the Trump administration had sent over a request to Twitter as well, but gave no details about them. I have no idea if those are or are not concerning from a First Amendment standpoint, but those would be the only ones that could potentially be 
Uh, you know, it would have been nice if he'd explained what they were. I think there are potential explanations that are not problematic under the First Amendment, and there are potential explanations that are extremely problematic under the First Amendment. Um, but without details, it's it's really difficult to say. But the 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 Biden campaign is is a private entity, not a part of the government. There's there's zero First Amendment concerns there. It seems like though in the right, folks are conflating this with a variety of other things that they're concerned about. COVID misinformation, of course. There's uh, you know state attorney general kind of inquiry into whether the White House coerced Twitter essentially to uh, limit speech around. Uh, COVID-19 vaccines, the rest. Um, There are obviously other concerns about the relationship between the FBI and uh, other social platforms. Um, So there is, you know, a broader kind of context here, a broader set of concerns. Yeah, and and that's true. And, and, you know, and some of those concerns, I think, are potentially legitimate on the margins, but I think are blown out of proportion in, in serious ways. And, and so I think a lot of people have, have taken a bunch of these stories and sort of conflated them and mixed them and like the specifics and the details really actually matter. So there were stories, you know, in particular of like, there were like FBI, there was an FBI agent who was meeting with social media companies. There's no indication whatsoever that those meetings, you know, involved the FBI telling the companies to take stuff down. It sounds as though they were pure information sharing, saying basically, you know, we're aware of foreign activity doing stuff. Please keep an eye out. This was another thing that was conflated uh, not too long ago, you know, whatever it was, a month or two ago when Mark Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan's podcast, and this was totally taken out of context. They they asked about the the Biden laptop and. Uh, once again, like not that Mark Zuckerberg is the most compelling of speakers, but but he he gave a, a pretty clear explanation of what happened on his end, which was that they had heard from the FBI, basically just in general, be aware that there may be some foreign influence operations and just keep an eye out. There was no indication that they got any sort of direct notification regarding the the Hunter Biden laptop story or the New York Post in particular, and in fact, you know. Facebook took a different approach to handling that particular story, which was that they didn't block it. They just didn't, you know, sort of held it back from trending and recommended topics until they could go through a fact check on it, which again is a perfectly reasonable stance to take. And yet everybody took that and said, oh, you know, he just admitted that the FBI told him to take down the story, which is not which is not what happened. So there are all sorts of things. I mean, I do think in general, the government should not be telling private websites certainly what to take down. I think that's pretty clearly a First Amendment problem or threatening them or trying to coerce them. You know, I think that some of the things that the Biden administration has done has been concerning on that front, you know, around like COVID misinformation where, you know, the then press secretary sort of calling out individuals and saying, you know, these accounts are still online. That one is is a much closer call. It's it's not, you know, I think it was it was kind of a dumb thing to do because it's basically giving giving the other side a bunch of talking points. There was no direct evidence of coercion or threats, which is where where the First Amendment issues come in. You know, I understand why the administration thought they should call out these accounts, but I, I think it's really it's it's a really bad look and it is, you know, at least verging on on a First Amendment concern. And so I, you know, I, I really don't think they should have done that. But like, you know, there, there still remains zero evidence of any actual like threats or coercion or anything around that. You know, other than like, you know, here and there, you have one-off senators or representatives making silly threats, and and this is on both sides of the aisle. 
So, you know, you have things like, you know, Elizabeth Warren telling telling the companies to shape up or she's going to legislate against them. And you have Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley on the Republican side threatening to change laws to punish companies, right? All of those, I think, are, are sort of First Amendment concerns. But, you know, the idea that there's any sort of direct issue around like, there's no, there's no evidence of anything that raises to the level of a, a First Amendment issue with regards to companies enforcing their policies and determining how they want to moderate content in the same way that news organizations are able to, to have their own editorial discretion. You know, all of these things happen. And I, I, I just, I think it's all blown out of proportion. I think a lot of people don't really understand how the First Amendment works. It does seem that there is a great deal of uncertainty and perhaps, uh, you know, in some cases, purposeful misdirection around, you know, how things actually work or how the law works um, in this. So we'll see how that all plays out, because we're going to be hearing a lot more about it, uh, at least if the headlines on uh, sites like Newsmax, Breitbart, Fox or any indication um, there are Republican uh, congressmen chomping at the bit to haul in Twitter executives to talk about this incident. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, even that, like, to me, that's, that's more concerning. That seems more of a First Amendment concern to me than anything else. Because basically, imagine just, you know, to, to, to show why this is crazy, just imagine if the Democrats said they were going to haul in Fox News executives to, to explain who they put on air and who they refuse to put on air. I think most people, uh, certainly Republicans would freak out about that and say that's a huge First Amendment problem because you're basically demanding, you're, you're putting pressure on these companies about their editorial discretion. And so I think the same is true of trying to haul in Twitter executives to demand they explain how they made their editorial discretion decisions in terms of content moderation. And yet, for whatever reason, people want to pretend it's something different. And so I, I you know, I think, I think both of those cases are bad. I don't think that Congress should be investigating Fox News for what it puts on the air. And I don't think Congress should be investigating Twitter for what it, how it decides to moderate its content. Last question, Mike. There was some notable uh, redaction errors in uh, the Twitter thread last night. Um, yeah. A congressman's personal email, Jack Dorsey's personal email uh, exposed. And yet there's sort of a bigger thing here, I suppose, about what Elon Musk will do with access to the information that he has now that he's acquired this company. Those personal emails are just a minor part of the personal information that he's acquired. What do you expect uh, to see from Elon? Uh, it sort of seems like he's, he's on a kind of quest here, or you know, this sort of revealed to some extent um, you know, part of his motivation to buy the company. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, to some extent that that involves thinking that there's some grand plan here, and, and and I'm just not sure that there is, and I'm not sure that he has any idea. And it really kind of feels like a lot of this is being driven in the moment by different whims or different demands from the people that he's following, and he sort of surrounded himself with with a, a sort of you know a very specific ideological viewpoint and is buying into it. You know, it's, it's kind of funny in a lot of different ways that a lot of what he is doing now is exactly the kinds of things that um, lots of people were accusing Twitter of doing before, you know, moderating based on, uh, based on personal ideology and whims and being arbitrary and, and not having a clear plan and, you know, just kind of like bouncing around and, and potentially not protecting privacy. And those are all things that like, 
Twitter of all companies was actually pretty, pretty careful about like, you know, having clear policies in place, trying to enforce them as fairly as possible. And I know people disagree with this or people say, oh, you know, that, that's not true. But like, if you actually knew like, you know, how much Twitter seemed to have done to really sort of bend over backwards to try to enforce its policies equally, not to do it arbitrarily and to have clear policies in place and not to just be based on the whims. It's funny too, because at the same time, you know, one of the big complaints that people had was they claimed that Twitter was shadow banning people. People are still tweeting at Elon Musk using this like very, very dubious online tool that claims to tell you if you're shadow banned or not. And it'll basically tell everybody. I, I was playing around with it and almost anyone you put into that tool will say it's, it's shadow banned. So people are like tweeting at Elon Musk saying, Hey, I'm shadow banned. You got to fix this. Meanwhile, so like shadow banning was this huge problem. And then meanwhile, part of his big, change to how they're handling content moderation is to implement more shadow banning and and people are, are cheering it on so you know his his approach to all of this is is nonsensical i mean he's just sort of making it up as he goes along and just you know kind of doing whatever he thinks is right in the moment so i don't think there's any sort of grand strategic plan you know some of this surprises me i mean i thought that he would know better than you know if he's going to reveal stuff you know if he wants to be transparent you know for the most part he has the right to be to release this stuff. I think there is a sort of side note on this, which is that it's a little bit odd for him to announce. And he, he also has hinted at, though it hasn't revealed any details, that, that the company may have interfered in the Brazilian election, which seems particularly stupid for him to say. But like all of this, if there was any, any law breaking by Twitter itself, He's he's the one who's liable for it. You know, he's bought the company. He owns it. So any of the liabilities came along with that. You know, he, he can't just foist that off and say that was the last guys because he 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 ended up with the liabilities as as well. So I'm not sure strategically what the what the the plan is here because it feels like a lot of the stuff he's doing is going to end up with him facing legal uh you know legal ramifications for his own statements here about what the company may or may not have done before, and so. In terms of revealing private information, I have no idea. I, I think it certainly does not suggest that he's being particularly careful with private information, handing it off to various journalists to go through. And, you know, it, it did appear, I mean, it was funny when the Taibi thread began, you know, the first few screenshots were, were pretty carefully redacted. And I'd actually commented to someone and was like, oh, at least he's redacting information. And then like halfway through, he just seemed to stop and suddenly like they were revealing names and emails. You know, the, the, uh, the Ro Khanna, Congressman Ro Khanna's email address, it, it turns out that Representative Khanna had revealed that publicly before. So it wasn't that big of a deal that Taibi revealed that <laughs> the Jack Dorsey one. It's just kind of funny, I guess. You know, it's not great, obviously, because I mean that screenshot had had his email in two places, and Matt had redacted one of them, but not the other, which is just kind of showing sloppiness and, and carelessness. Which you know, the entire thread kind of showed that. But you know, it it is this kind of like sloppy, careless attitude, which is kind of incredible because you know one of the big complaints around Twitter for years and, and and a legitimate one I think was that the company was really really slow in doing anything but part of the reason they were so slow is because they were perhaps seriously overly cautious about everything that they did and how it might impact private data and privacy and information that they were sharing and that often led the company from the outside it certainly felt sometimes like the company was not being transparent enough 
but a lot of that was just them being very cautious and careful around private information. And clearly the days of that happening are, are long gone. And now we're just getting, you know, kind of whatever uh, Elon wants without much thought to the wider impact. And I think just the one example of that is that within the Taibi thread, some sort of frontline, effectively low level employees were named uh, and their names were very clearly stated. And some of those people have since gotten death threats, you know, for really not doing anything concerning in the slightest, but just doing a basic, you know, frontline trust and safety kind of job. And, you know, that certainly suggests that, you know, the company is not only not concerned about private data, but also the health and wellness of, of people who work there. Uh, in his Twitter space tonight, uh, Musk invoked the Stasi files um, and <laughs> Mandela and truth and reconciliation um, and sort of seemed to suggest that getting this information out is a way of kind of uh, rectifying uh, some great harm that's been done and clearing you know, the, the runway for uh, Twitter to emerge as a, a more legitimate part of democracy. Um, so we'll see what happens with uh, future revelations. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I'll say is like, to me, like I, I'm surprised at at how how benign they were. Honestly, like it, you know, I, I've I've dealt with Twitter's trust and safety folks for many years, and you know, had had through my interactions with them and my discussions with them, had been always been impressed. I thought that they were really thoughtful and careful, and you know, just just actually really good at, at thinking through these different issues. And so, you know, when these files came out, I was like, huh, you know, I wonder because, you know, it's one thing for how they interact with me as, you know, as a, a journalist, you know, you can put on a good face and and I'm sure that I could be fooled, right? So I was like, maybe, maybe I'll learn that behind closed doors, they were really doing stuff that was a lot, a lot more sketchy. And, and honestly, like, it seemed like the opposite is what came out of it. But but the idea that, that this is magically leading to like a more trusted Twitter does not seem to be the case because people are taking these files that really showed that like the old Twitter was actually really good at, at trust and safety and competent and careful and thoughtful. And they made mistakes because everybody makes mistakes. Uh, you know, and I think the policy was was bad, as I've said, but like it, it showed I thought they actually came out of it looking really good, like really careful, thoughtful. They were discussing it in the way that that every trust and safety discusses these things and not not suggesting any kind of political bias or, you know, uh, desire to you know influence elections or anything like that. And so, you know, in some weird way, it did it increased it increased my trust of the old regime, <laughs> uh, but, you know, really decreased my trust in the new regime just because of the way that, that they're trying to spin this as if it's, you know, some proof of, of something horrible that happened before. So it, it certainly made me a lot, you know, I was already not particularly trustful of this regime and this has only reinforced that. Well, certainly um, our opinions, your opinion, my opinion could change uh, on this, yeah. depending on what comes out. Uh, we're told that there are thousands more documents and that now uh, Taibi has been joined by Barry Weiss in reviewing those documents. So um, I suppose I'll just insert a great caveat here that (laughs) we haven't seen the trove. And until we do, uh, we, of course, can't make final comment. But thank you, Mike, for this at least first go at it. And uh, I appreciate it very much. Yeah, no problem. You know, uh, Musk wants uh, Twitter employees to work hardcore, which appears to be including weekends, too. So I guess we also have to do that. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thanks. 
That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.